This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Stacy Barton. Stacy, thank you for taking this time to chat with me today. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. We got talking a little bit before we started recording, and it turns out we have more people in common than we realize, and I'm sure as the conversation continues, we'll realize that even further. Fun fact for everyone listening, we're both in Florida. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Disney, SeaWorld, uh, the old Ringling Brothers, and their company, Feld Entertainment. We're going to be talking about so much of your writing history, and I definitely want to touch on you as well being a published writer. So let's jump in to the beginning of time for Stacy Barton. What were your entertainment dreams growing up? Oh my goodness. That's a funny question. I, I, I don't know if I had any consciously. I mean, I always loved to perform. My mother was a dancer. Um, and so performing in front of an audience was fabulous. I remember being in the first grade. We had just moved from Oklahoma to Tennessee and um, I had an ear for accents. So within two weeks, I had a crazy Southern accent. And for anyone who is in my age demographic, you might remember the shake and bake commercials. <laughs> and I did, a, I did a taping of a shake and bake commercial with a perfect Nashville accent after only having lived there for two weeks. You shake and I'll bake. <laughs> so your mom was working as a dancer in Nashville? No, no, no. Was she the- was a ballerina before kids. Oh, my God. Okay, amazing. And so where did you primarily grow up? Um, well, was all my over? young years, <laughs> yes, all over, yeah. all over. Um, my young years in Oklahoma um, and some in Tennessee and then a lot of time in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, my junior high and high school before I came to Florida. And were these conversations in, within yourself of wanting to perform or just be a part of entertainment in some way or... Well, I didn't have I didn't have the classic dream like oh I want to be on stage I I I wanted to do something that no one had done and they seemed to all be taken you know the first man in space the first woman doctor I remember being very tragically bothered by that um, but what I the two things I did as a kid was I performed and I wrote stories so it's interesting really that then my beginning in entertainment was as a performer um, but then. After, after that career, I began as a writer in entertainment. So I guess it does, does sort of match up with what I liked as a child. Yeah. What was the, do you remember the first story or piece of literature or poetry that you ever wrote? Wally the Watermelon. Was this a, a children's book or was this a... Was, this was on, you know, that school gray paper with the turquoise lines and the dotted one in the middle? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then nice like thing. a... <laughs> and they had a space at the top for you to do your own illustrations. I did that. Wally the Watermelon. It was wildly popular <laughs> in front of my entire family. I was the age, ripe old age of nine. And I couldn't tell you anyone after they were so astounded at my literary prowess that it was a completely plagiarized story from a picture book I'd seen at school. <laughs> <laughs> And I couldn't tell because they were so excited for me. Oh, my so goodness. I guess that's what whipped my whistle for um, wanting to write stories that people would love. Well, when did it become a decision for you to be like, oh, wait, I can actually make a dollar doing this? Was that? I was a performer. I started with SAC Theater, which was an yeah. improv troupe on the streets of Epcot Center back in the days when it was the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. <laughs> And we did comedy on the streets of Italy and the UK. 
And um, that's really where I got my start in theater with, with the audience as absolutely the center of everything. And we should talk about that. But yeah. um, after I performed there, I started having kids. And by the time I had four, it was just harder to perform than um, to write. Uh, and so I was also hit by a truck, which meant it was hard for me to teach dance. And I was in a car. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, okay. Um, but the first time I wrote was actually some friends of mine were in town that I'd been in SAC with and they were writing for Disney. And I was like, well, I want to do that. And my other friend said, so call Rhonda, this other friend of mine. So yeah. I did. And the, the story goes basically within 24 hours, I had a um, open-ended contract to write for entertainment as needed. And that's well, okay. How Let's not skip all that. How did that conversation <laughs> play out what did you have samples ideas thoughts did you just love it what was the please walk us through that first conversation sure um well i had been writing um illustrations and sketches um for other companies uh, some publishing companies i'd done some stuff for some big organizations in town that wanted to illustrate the concept and so that we would do a short sketch for the um meeting and then um, when I found out that they needed proposal writers for the Disney event group, which is the special event arm mm -hmm. at, at Disney Entertainment, um, I went in and I did have a little book. I had a little notebook that had, um, when I started writing, maybe two years before that, I was amazed that writers didn't have any kind of calling card. They didn't have any, you know, I came from the world of theater. Where's your headshot and resume? How are you pitching yourself? And nobody had a way to do that. So I created these one cheaters basically about myself. So I had already had them. Oh, yeah. Then I had a handful of pieces that had been published in books. So I just had that all in a little notebook and took it in and showed it to um, De Dennis Wersman and Leslie Campbell. And they were like, all right, let's put you on contract. And I left with a signed contract, which I didn't realize was super strange um, at the time. Uh, there were no other... Um, there were other contract writers, but I really became the first writer at Walt Disney World. That at that time, the show directors did all their own writing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. More and more questions abound. I uh, want to touch on really quick. You brought up a great point that you had your one cheater and your book, you know, with all the samplings and stuff. And I appreciate you expanding on that because most often we'll hear in these interviews, no, oh, I had this conversation. One thing led to another and then I was employed by so-and-so. But there's a lot of background to you getting employed by that company with the previous work you did. You had, you know, preparation more so than just showing up. You had the details, the, the, you know, meat and potatoes, whatever you want to call it. So I appreciate you sharing that jumping backwards a little bit to audiences being the center uh, of the storytelling. I do want to talk about that. And I'm curious what, what, if any, do you want to add on that topic? Well, it's a topic I'm extraordinarily passionate about. Um, like I said, I got my start doing, I don't know if I did say it, but with street theater was what we did. In so Italy, basically, yes. It came out of the world of Renaissance festivals. And so we would be at the World Showcase at, at Epcot, if you, if you can kind of picture that. Mm -hmm. um, and we would come out, we would gather a crowd out of nothing with not a real stage. We did it on the street. We'd put down row rags and pull the audience up to stand near us and create a story using sort of sketch, uh, comedian type, you know, stock stories. And we would pull people out of the audience to literally be the stars of the show. 
And so we had this intimate experience, but it could be four or 500 people would gather from nothing, from like 10 people at the row rag. And um, I think that solidified my perspective on the audience being the center, because if you're doing that show um, and you're not, you're not listening to the audience, you're not meeting a need, you're not involving them in what's happening, they simply walk away. They do not say, they will not tolerate something that is a talking head. One of my biggest beefs about um, themed entertainment, when you have too much dialogue that's trying to further the plot, means you've taken too big a chunk of the, of the story to tell in a live setting. But, right. but so that's where my love of the audience really came from. And, it, and it, it carries on. I think it's probably one of my greatest strengths as a, a themed entertainment writer of course, everyone's thinking about the audience. So I'm not talking about anything new, but right. I do it in really specific ways. I think of how many of their senses have we touched? How, um, what is the promise we're offering in this piece, whether it's a walk around character or a five minute fireworks show or you know, whatever it is, how, what are we promising to give them? How are we delivering that promise? And what do they take away? And those things better be powered by emotion. You know, they're going to take away a feeling. Mm-hmm. If they don't take away a feeling or a, a touch point on their own story, then it, it, they won't remember it. It's just sort of us listening to our own echo, those of us who create it. But if we create it constantly asking, what is the audience getting? What do they need? How does this little show fit in with the greater um the greater good or the greater uh, insanity of what's going on, you know? Yeah. And I really do ask those questions, even if you can't necessarily see anything deep and intense from a walk around Halloween character, mm-hmm. there's still something in there that I've made that investigation as to what's the experience of the audience. Even if they just want to be afraid and laugh, <laughs> that's still an experience. <laughs> that's so so true. Now, did you come up with these questions on your own, just from your own experience of telling these stories? Because they're specific. Well, they're smart. They're really smart questions. They, they're questions I've, I don't know that I've articulated them that often before this pandemic when I've had so many people talking to me and asking me, how do you do what you do? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What's important to you? Um, how do you manage that? Right. And so... Um, I don't know that anyone ever suggested those questions. I think Mm. they just, if you do enough shows, you start to notice the repetition Yeah, and you start to recognize how it fits into the creative process. Yeah. And so that's, those are my questions. I mean, they may be already asked. Um, I don't know. Um, I've only worked a little bit with Imagineering in terms of when they were involved in a project I was involved in with the entertainment department. Mm. Um, so I think they may very well be more likely to be consciously asking those questions, but um, it's definitely something that I do. And I try to bring to the table um, out loud, you know, when we're, when we're gathered around the set designers and the music producers, you know, whoever's around that, that needs to be in that. I think of those questions as kind of my, um, that's what I develop. Mm -hmm. Whether people know that I'm doing it or not, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you need to ask them out loud to the whole table. Sometimes 
you ask questions that come from that desire. Right, right. Now, I understand um, through just like what the definition of Imagineering is, you know, working on themed rides. Sometimes they'll work on the parades, uh, shows, particular shows. And it's all divided so differently within the company on who works on what and how it gets created with whom. And you have worked on many different aspects throughout the company. Um, Curious. If we could talk about one of them, you get to pick because I don't want to, you know, I want to make sure it's all kosher. But I want to talk about a project that you worked on with Disney that uh, maybe taught you the most or one that stands out in your mind as a lot of lessons learned in storytelling. With Disney, does anything come to mind? Um, well, there, we've done quite a few immersive experiences at and inside the ballrooms like taking over a bank of like four ballrooms i don't know how many square feet that is but that's a large footprint yeah and um and we have basically created worlds that that disney fans adore so that they can step into the experience um so we've done i'll give you a few and you can tell me which one's interesting to you sure sure. probably all (laughs) We've um, we've done Alice's Wonderland, so where 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 um, a private group has gone into the experience. We've done one with the Disney villains. We've done one with the haunted mansion. Mm-hmm. We've done one with a jolly holiday where the family got to jump into the chalk painting and a kabuki drop opened up this whole park. Oh my goodness! So I can talk about any of those. That yeah, they're let's, all- let's talk about Mary Poppins. Let's talk about. <laughs> Okay. How do those con- yeah? How do those conversations take place, and what are your lessons that you are learning as you're going through this thoughtful, thoughtful storytelling? Right. Well, in I do have this amazing opportunity to work with um, some of Disney's affluent clients, which are people who come in, families who want to create uh, an experience um, that's just for their group. You know, maybe forty people, maybe twelve people, maybe twenty people. Right. And they usually have a good budget to spend. And so it's really quite delightful because they they will come with some idea. The particular one, we're talking about the Jolly Holiday with Mary. Mm. That came about because um, of a family that wanted to have a baby shower for their first grandchild. And um, they did not know the sex of the child, the gender of the baby. They didn't know if it was male or female. So in this show we revealed that the gender of the baby to the whole family oh my goodness um but they so what they did was they came and um they came into a small area it's always nice to have a reveal right that's that's a thing that's in so many um attractions that are built that remain right you have a queue or you have a first room right um pre-show whatever um so the first room and this was a little park and there was a, a little um, improvisational actress playing the uh, you know Cockney flower girl, pinning posies on all the moms and sisters and cousins. It was all women. Yeah. And then um, she reminded everyone of Bert and Mary, and they went over and there were chalk paintings on the ground, which were an, an artist's floor cling for those of us inside the business. Sure. <laughs> and behind it was this beautiful mural of the park. And when she got all of the women to hold hands and jump onto the chalk painting, and when she did, a kabuki drop revealed this totally pastel park with a gazebo and a little footbridge and a carousel table that had horses on it. So you sat at the carousel table, 
but the tabletop was the stage for the night. And we had a cast of singers and dancers and different characters that came in between courses of, uh, of, of, this, of the meal. And um, at the very end, of course, Mary Poppins and Bert came out and everyone in, the, in their seats got to fly the kites. And, and as I said before, in the middle of it, when they pulled out of the carpet bag, the note from John and Michael Banks, I mean, Jane and Michael Banks, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know the song, the nanny song? Oh, yeah. The, yeah, so that nanny song, instead of being signed by Jane and Michael Banks, it was signed by the name of the baby. And that's how they found out if it was a boy or a girl at the end of the song. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> that's that's the most intense gender reveal I've ever heard in my entire life. And that- Yes, we, we, had a, we had one other one that was pretty good, too. But oh. it, it was really, what was really fun about that, and I think what, what we continue to learn every time we do one of these is that it, it goes back to the audience being in the center. Mm-hmm. They really want to be in the show. They don't really want to just watch the show. They, they want to be in the show. When we do the Haunted Mansion, the ballroom dancing ghosts in these gorgeous glowing costumes actually dance with the people at the table, right you know, when, when this group was there in the Jolly Holiday, they got to jump into the chalk painting. They got to walk over the footbridge with Mary Poppins and get their picture taken. You know, they, yeah. they got to be part of the pearly band. They got to fly kites from their seats, you know, on sticks. <laughs> and and I think they, they just, the audience wants to be inside the stories they love. That's what I think Disney Cruise Line has done a great job with. Because my my two years working on the fantasy I recognize the fact, you know, even in Aladdin, they they were in the audience. The parade went through the audience. The confetti, yes. there was dance moments with children in the audience in the old show that no longer is there, the Disney wishes. So it's it's very, you're right, it's very common and very intelligent to do that because the audience, you can even feel it when you're standing on a stage performing. You can feel when the audience is getting stale. You can feel when you're losing their attention. And one of those moments, you know, four minutes, right? That's about how long a song is, changes. It just changes the whole experience for the whole family. So it's so smart. Absolutely. And and Disney is fabulous at that Um all of the detail in in an immersive um, attraction. Yeah. But sometimes in the live entertainment, I found it helps for me to raise my hand and go, "Let's go back. What what are they getting?" Because there's this desire to perform a show from a stage, right. but you have to realize the audience that comes to themed entertainment. Well, they do want to see some spectacle on the stage for sure. Yeah. Um, they also want to matter to the forward motion of the story. They want to. They want to somehow have agency or certainly be super touched by their own story. Mm-hmm. That happens also, you know, where they, they have an entrance point where that feels like them. Mm. That's so, that's so, that's so beautiful. And it's so Disney. <laughs> uh, the villains show that you worked on, the, what was that another, that was another immersive uh, experience. What did that, what did that entail? Well, that um, that started, um, so at the Disney event group, that special event arm of, right. of entertainment that I was talking about, um, we would often have really interesting opportunities to do research and development, to, to use the brand of Disney appropriately, of course. It was always very, we had to be very careful. Um, but I would say probably around 2011, we started going 
hey, this villain's franchise, it wasn't even really considered a franchise yet. This villain thing is going to work. Like people love this (laughs) and everyone wants to show off their inner villain, especially in the safe confines of Disney. Right. So if you're going to show off your inner villain and it's Disney, you're not really worried about being nasty or actually cruel or um, some kind of weird magic or something. It's Disney. Right. So people love to show their villain side. So we started using the villains like that. And then probably by 20, 14 or 15, we did an, an immersive experience for a small private group yeah. where it was the Disney Divas of Evil and it was Club Villain, a Club Evil. And it later, um, after we did it a few times, it later um, led to um, a hard ticket event that was called Club Villain that was held in the, um, in the Black Fox Theater off of... Um, uh, I'm so sorry. Um, Disney Studios. Hollywood studios. Um, So in that, we just learned, um, we pulled four of the, of the female villains and they each had kind of a boudoir in the corner place where they could have pictures. And then we had floor show moments where maybe that diva would come in. She would have dancers, lighting or projection mapping would happen all around the room. Mm. We had a potions bar where all of the drinks were named after the villains. Um, and it was just, you know, so one of the villains would come in, she would have her floor show moment, she would go to her boudoir for photos, people would dance, we had a live band, they'd get drinks, and then the next villain would come in, and the same kind of thing. And this was a happen. two hour event, or longer, yes. shorter? Yeah, longer. yes, it was definitely two hours. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly how long it would have had food and dancing and stuff in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was super popular. And um it was, it was, again, so exciting because in these situations where we had these smaller private events, um, we get a chance to kind of try some things out and see what works and see what sparks people, what they get excited about. Um, so has, th- that's what those, those events are helpful for. Your work with the villains, has that led into what we now see in the parks around Halloween? Is that that has been a culmination of what? Hocus Pocus <laughs> and all of those other villains have now, I mean, they're, it's, they're huge. It's big, big time stuff. Um, right. Well, I, I would not say that the work that I did necessarily directly influenced it, but certainly all of us were going, you know, probably thinking at the same time, right? Sure. So there were sure. people all over the company going, Hmm, this villain thing, you know, and then you had the, some of the television shows, The Descendants, that put a new spin and kind of a, a sexy turn and sure. playful, you know, that kind of stuff. So, sure. um, so it didn't. I didn't directly influence it, no, but indirectly, sure. We were all going. We've sure. got to do more with the villains. Um, Allison Moran is the one who um, actually scripted the Hocus Pocus at, on the stage. It's such a great show. She does an amazing job. It's it's incredible. I love it. I'll watch them on YouTube just to, you know, feel like the world is normal again sometimes, you know. That's a guilty pleasure. Um, At this time, during this time, working with Disney, were you then getting approached or approaching the other companies that exist in Orlando and worldwide from, like, Norwegian to SeaWorld? So what if you could take us a little bit, kind of stringing together your journey with everything else, what was that looking like for you during all this? Um, well, so when I was a young writer, first starting out in 2000, I basically took any work that people would pay me to write, <laughs> you know, 
And so I kept that. I still kind of have that. I guess it's also just sort of my curiosity and my eagerness. Mm. So pretty much if anyone comes to me and says, I have this project, I want to hear what is it? Mm. And, and, um, you know, and, it, and certainly if it has pay, I'm all in sure, right. right now, I'll take curious projects for on, you know, on the hope that it will become money. Right, right. Uh, so as, to answer your question, really, people came to me, um, uh, I had Ringling Brothers Circus, which was really facilitated by Feld Entertainment, came to me to write a circus. Um, when I did this SeaWorld work, it was because um, the person who had hired me at Disney Event Group, Dennis Wurzman, moved to SeaWorld. And so um, I, he brought me over there to SeaWorld for a few years. Right, and right. Uh, I did a Shamu show and um, a, oh, a really fun show with Bindi Irwin. If you remember Andy Irwin, yeah. the the Australian animal dude, oh, yeah. his daughter, Bindi. We did a, um, a show that was part um, web webisode and part live. And I created that. That was really fun. She toured the parks. Mm. Um, that was SeaWorld. Um, and I've had just different companies over the years would call me. Ron Logan at Dream Vision called me to work on a, a music theme park. Um, Reva Creative called me to work on um, Bollywood Parks Dubai. Um, and also, um, I did some work for, I can never say it properly, Hai Chang Ocean Park in China. I'm not getting the name right. Okay. okay. Um, so mostly people would come to me sure. and, and say, we heard you write, here's what we have, would you be interested? And so, like I said, I pretty much always say yes, unless I've worked with them before and they're difficult because at some point you just really pick the gig based on who you're working with almost more than what it is. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.